Welcome to the King's Word Bible Study. Today our topic is going to be sowing to the Spirit. Let's begin today in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, beginning in the 23rd verse, it says, And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Verse 28 told us, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Eternal life is one of the greatest aspects of our faith, but unfortunately, it's also one of the most misunderstood. Understanding eternal life for what it really is, understanding the fact that we are never going to die, should radically change everything about our lives, not only in the spiritual realm, but also in the natural. Our bodies may still face physical death, which is a sad reality rooted in our fallen, sinful human nature. But just because the body can die doesn't mean that we really face death in its fullest, most extensive form. While our body can die, now that we're saved, our soul and our spirit will never die. They go on forever. We don't truly die. We're just translated into the kingdom. Our soul and our spirit have a change of residence, and they continue on as they've always been. And one day, we'll have a new body to go along with them. This is important, because this means that what we perceive as death in the natural isn't really death in its true form. Our last real encounter with death was when we were born again, and the old self died. The old personality, the old carnal way of thinking, the old insubordinate way of acting died and we became new creatures in Christ Jesus. Now that we're born again, we don't face death, because death has been done away with. 2 Timothy 1 and 10 tells us, But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Abolished is a strong word, and it carries with it a strong meaning. He didn't impede death. He didn't suspend it. He didn't limit it. He abolished it, completely and totally abolished it forever. And this is something that we affirm to be true in our words, but something that we disregard in our actions. The concordance says for the word abolished in the Greek, it means to idle down, rendering something inert, completely inoperative, being of no effect, totally without force, completely brought down, done away with, caused to cease and therefore abolish, make invalid, to discharge, sever, separate from. This is what the Lord has done to death. It's gone. It isn't a part of our lives anymore. Now we're free from it, and the devil can no longer hold it over our heads as a burden, unless we let him. It's a lack of understanding that causes Christians to have such a crippling fear of death. It's when we truly understand that death has been permanently abolished forever, that we're free to say, as 1 Corinthians 15 and 55 says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting won't be there anymore, because death itself won't be there anymore. We know this to be true also from the sting itself. What is the sting? 
We find the answer to this in the next verse. Verse 56 tells us, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The sting is sin, which is interesting because sin is the cause of death in the first place. Since we've been forgiven through Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf, we're no longer in bondage to sin. Our sin has been removed and cast into the sea of forgetfulness. The second half of Hebrews 9 and 26 says, But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's put away sin. The concordance says for the phrase put away, in the Greek, it means a setting aside, annulment, nullification. It also goes on to say that it means a cancellation, what is rendered no longer in effect, no longer having a place. Sin has been abolished just like death has. Death is the effect of sin, not the other way around. An effect cannot exist where there is no cause. Since we know that the Lord has abolished and put away sin, we can be absolutely sure that death has been abolished and put away also, and at the same level of totality. Our sins were put upon Christ. He bore them on our behalf, and He also bore death on our behalf. He bore the feeling of being separated from God so that we wouldn't have to. It's the carnal mind of man, the mindset that the devil tries to implant in the minds of believers that makes death the fearful object of anxiety and duress that it is. The next question that this leads us to is if this is true and death isn't a part of our life any longer, if we've already experienced death vicariously through Christ and through the death of our old nature, what do we make of the death of our body? Isn't that still death? For the world, when the body dies, it means a complete, total death because it had no relationship with Christ. But it's not the same story with us. We have God as a part of our life. We freely accepted and embraced His sacrifice on our behalf. And we know He's removed sin and death far away from us. So although we may call it death, it's not really death when our body ceases to operate. It's something entirely different. It's really a translation. It's the point where soul and spirit change locations while still retaining all the things that make them unique and special and individual. Colossians 1 and 13 says, Who have delivered us from the power of darkness and have translated us into the kingdom of his dear son? The word translate means in the Greek to cause to change its place, move out of its place, to transfer. This is all that happens when our body ceases to operate. The soul and spirit are moved to another realm. It's easy in the natural to not give the soul and spirit much thought, but they are just as much a part of us, if not more so, than our body is. We have to remember that our body is only one-third of what makes us who we really are. This may seem hard to understand, but it could be looked at like an astronaut's relation to his spacesuit. When he's going to travel into space, he needs a special suit, specifically designed to support him and keep him alive in the hostile environment he's heading into. And during the time he's there, that suit can never leave him, otherwise he would instantly die. Then, eventually he comes back to Earth. He changes places, and that spacesuit is no longer necessary. He could have it if he wanted it, but it would no longer serve any special purpose. It would no longer be the sole link keeping him alive, because he's no longer in an environment that's so hostile. He's in a place that he was designed to be in. A place where he can thrive without the limitations that that suit put on him. The same is true with our relation to the human body. Our body is our spacesuit, 
It's necessary while we're here in this hostile world. It keeps us alive. We can't do without it. But there comes a time when we're ready to go home. When this happens, we change places. We go to the kingdom of heaven. And suddenly, we're there. We're where we were designed to be. A place where we don't need that suit. It was nice while we had it. But it wouldn't serve the same purpose there. So we don't bring it with us. When we get to heaven, we can take the suit off because we're in an environment that is conducive to us. We can shed the outward layer of human restrictions, and we can be truly free to be ourselves in the most absolute, perfect form. The outward may not survive, but the outward is just aesthetic. It's the adornment that makes up the surface level. But that really isn't us, at least not all of us. The real us, the real person who we are, is what lies beneath the surface. It's our soul and our spirit. And it's these inward components of us that survive and can then rise to the surface when we lay down the suit. The real you is the inward you. And this is why eternal life, at the fundamental level, deals exclusively with the inward. After Christ comes back to rule and reign, we're going to have a new body, not subject to the same limitations and boundaries as the ones that we currently have. But although it will be a new type of outward, it won't be an outward that holds us back and limits us. It will be an outward that frees us and beautifies us even more than ever before. It will be the outward expression of all that lies beneath the surface. It won't be something separate. Until that day, however, eternal life is dealing with the inward, and scripture affirms this. Ecclesiastes 3 and 11 in the English Standard Version says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The word for heart in the Hebrew used here is the word that means inner man, mind, will, and heart. This is the word always used in Hebrew to refer to a man's spirit. God has placed within us eternal life. He's put it within the most intimate part of our being, the part that is the greatest manifestation of who we really are and the part of us that reaches out to and connects to God. What this reveals to us, more than anything else, is a fundamental truth that's been missed by many Christians today, and that, when not properly understood, can skew our perspective and take our focus off of the right things. This fundamental truth is that we don't enter into eternal life. Eternal life enters into us, because Christ, who is eternal life, came to dwell within us. This took place when we were born again. It's within us right now, this very moment. We're living our eternal life right now. It won't always be lived here on earth, but our life itself doesn't stop. It just changes locations. This isn't by accident that he's put eternal life within our spirit. He did it for a reason, and now it's our job to learn that reason and learn what we can do about it. When the Holy Spirit comes into our life, he dwells within our spirit. And that's one of the main reasons why we find that he has put eternal life within our spirit. John 17 and 3 tells us, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is the substance of what makes eternal life what it is. It's knowing God, knowing Christ, on a deep, intimate level. He put eternal life within our spirit, because that's the part of us which is actively listening to his voice. It's the part looking for his guidance, and it's the part that is desperately reaching out to be with him. It's the part of us for which we can know God, 
It's because of this that we then have to understand the best way by which we can know God. We know that a personal, intimate knowledge of Him is necessary to having eternal life. It's a failure to know Him that is the very thing that keeps people from having and enjoying the joys of eternal life. Because God is looking for love and companionship, and those things can never occur with those whom we don't know. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23 say, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The consequences of this are real, and there is stark contrast to what many Christians have been led to believe. So it's important that we figure out how exactly we get to know God. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in the 19th verse, says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Although it may not seem like it at first, these verses give us the key to knowing God. We don't know God simply through thoughts or for words. Thoughts can sometimes lead to nothing. And words can be idle and empty in meaning. We have to know Him through something deeper. We even have to know Him through something deeper than actions. Because actions can be done for show. They can be pretentious. We have to know God through character. When we know God's character, we'll know God. These fruits of the Spirit are some of His major characteristics. The attributes that He perfectly and completely embodies. These are traits that are the outgrowths of Him as a perfect and a good God. Knowing someone goes both ways. If we truly know someone on a deep level, they must know us too. And God knows us. He knows who we really are, through our character, who we are on the inside. Since this is the case, we should desire for our character to be like His. And our role is to bring our character into line with His. This won't happen instantly. It takes time and effort. The outward sign that we want to be known by Him in the same way that He knows us is when these fruits of the Spirit begin to manifest in our daily lives. These things should become inseparable from us as a person. They should be indelible marks on our spirit. And this has a direct role as it relates to the eternal life that God has placed within our spirit. Let's go to the next chapter, Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, Beginning in the fourth verse, it says, But every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. 
but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. As we just saw, verse 8 told us, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. This is an important concept, sowing to the Spirit. People sow in the natural, sowing to their flesh. They do it all the time. Not only in the agricultural sense, but also in the financial sense, and also in the personal sense. People sow into their own lives and into their own futures, even when their perspective only encompasses this temporal, natural world. If the world does this and sees the value in it, how much more should we do it as the children of God? Many times the devil gets us to put all of our focus on the natural, all of our focus on the body and on the threat of death, which only breeds fear, worry, anxiety, and insecurity in our lives, while we miss what truly matters. We take care of and watch over the outward, but we don't cultivate or care for the inward. We make sure that our body is healthy and can last a long time, but we don't make sure that our soul and our spirit are healthy. We can't tolerate this deception of the enemy, because the body doesn't last forever, but the soul and the spirit do. So if we're going to invest in anything, it should primarily be the soul and the spirit. It's not wrong to invest in the body. It's good and it has its place, but it shouldn't be our top priority. God has established a spirit, soul, and body in that order. And when we invest, we should keep our priorities in that same order. So the next question that we need to ask ourselves is how do we invest in our eternal life? How do we sow to the spirit? The first thing to understand is that the fruit is eternal life. This is what grows. This is the result of the sowing. When we sow in the Spirit and then reap accordingly, our eternal spiritual life becomes more vibrant. It transforms into what God meant for it to be. These verses aren't the only place in Scripture where we see eternal life referred to on a sowing and reaping basis. Earlier, we looked at Ecclesiastes 3 and 11 in the ESV. In the New Living Translation, it's translated as, Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's word from the beginning to end. God has planted eternity within us. So it's not hard to understand why when we sow to the Spirit, that we'll also reap eternal life. It's a fundamental biblical principle and a principle for natural life as well, that you reap what you sow. It always works the same, and it will never change. Sowing to the Spirit has to do with the fruits of the Spirit. As we've looked at it over times, understanding that they are fruit makes all the difference. No fruit ever starts as a fruit. They don't just appear fully grown on a tree one day. They start as a seed. They have to be placed in the ground, and then they grow and develop over time. We have to cultivate these seeds in our lives. When we became born again, and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. God implanted these seeds within our spirit. Now that we know that the seeds are there and that they've been sowed, now we have to do our part and cultivate them. This means that we have to create the right environment for them to properly grow. They need to be watered by living water, the water of the Word of God. They have to have enough light. They have to be exposed to the Son, the Son of God. The more time that we're alone with God through prayer, and the more time that we're in the Word through studying, we'll find that these spiritual fruits naturally grow. It won't always be noticeable at first. These things take time, just like they do in the natural, 
but they will grow because we've been promised that if we sow, we will reap. And since God has done the planting himself, we can be sure that the harvest will be abundant and we can be sure that nothing can stop us from reaping because we've been promised that once he's begun a work, he will always bring it to completion. The greatest things about these fruits is that they're not temporal, they're eternal. Once we add them as operative parts of our life, nothing and no one can ever steal them from us. They're ours forever. If we're going to invest in anything, it should be these things that are eternal, because these inward characteristics are the only things that we can keep forever. These things are some of our treasures that we lay up in heaven. It's these things that make eternal life spent with God what it is. Let's make the choice today to sow to the Spirit and invest in our eternal life. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you haven't just limited or suppressed sin and death, but that you completely and totally abolished it forever. Lord, we thank you that these things are no longer a part of our life, that they've been permanently done away with. Lord, we thank you that you sacrificed your life, paying the penalty that we should have paid on our behalf. And Lord, we thank you that you suffered separation from God so that we would never have to. Lord, we thank you that you gave us the gift of eternal life, that you've planted it within our spirit. And Lord, we ask for the wisdom to cultivate this gift, to cultivate that fruit that is going to grow in our spirit. Lord, we thank you that we can invest in these characteristics that we won't just have for the here and now, but those characteristics that we'll have for all of eternity. We thank you that our soul and our spirit go on forever. And Lord, we thank you for the new body that we're going to have and enjoy one day. Lord, we give you all the glory for all that you have done in our lives, all that you're doing right now, and all the great, amazing things for all of eternity that you have planned out for all of your people. We know that the best is yet to come. And Lord, we give you all the praise and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you want to sow to the Spirit and of Jesus as a part of your life today, all you need to do is to invite Jesus into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior. You then need to repent of your sins and ask for his forgiveness. Then you trust that you've been forgiven and you ask for his free gift of eternal life. Now, if you've prayed this from a sincere heart and you truly meant it, then you are now a part of the family of God. Welcome to God's family. We want to thank everybody for listening today. We appreciate you taking out your time to spend with us. If you'd like to give us feedback and tell us how much you appreciate this show, you can contact us at kingswordbiblestudy at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about this program and this ministry, you can visit kingswordbible.com. We appreciate also if you write a review from wherever you're listening to this podcast from. And if you follow and subscribe so that more people can hear the King's Word for themselves. God bless you. We want you to know that we love you all. And we will see you next week as we continue to study the King's Word together.